Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello, this is Rhonda. I'm an executive producer of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. The power went out. The wind is howling. But that isn't important right now. I must tell you that you too can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Just visit patreon.com and look for the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Let's help Diane and Denise keep the creeps coming, shall we? And in case you're wondering why I'm whispering, I think I just spotted the lady in white and she doesn't look the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 198th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Today's episode, we're bringing you a little something different. We're going to be hosting a roundtable about Shakespeare and ghosts. This podcast is being published on April 23rd in honor of Shakespeare's birthday. But we have a birthday that's even more special than Shakespeare's today. And that is Angie, who is joining us on our roundtable today. So happy birthday to you, Angie. Hope it's a good one. And now we want to welcome people to the Spooktacular crew. And just so you all know a little behind the scenes, we recorded this episode in pieces. And Denise is gone the weekend that I'm finishing this up. She flew back to hang out with her dad. He's 90 and he hasn't been doing so well. So she's been trying to spend some extra time with him. So she flew back to Colorado. So I'm going to be the only one welcoming you, but just know that in spirit, she's welcoming you guys as well. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, James, Georgina, Seth, Alan, Frankie, Jennifer, and Jenny, who spells her name with one N. So Denise would say, welcome, Jenny, with one N. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Handsome Devil Puppets are a creepy assortment of puppets created by an artist named Han. They are hand-sculpted and decorated with antique lace, real human hair, remnants from a grandmother's jewelry box, and bones. Han started creating these puppets to help her deal with life and death. They are inspired by horror films and mysterious famous personalities. The clothing Han dresses her creations in is historically accurate and hand-stitched. She says... I have a long-standing fascination with Victorian mourning practices and memento mori. After a traumatic, life-threatening event in my life, I seem to lose the ability to process the idea of death and loss. Studying the practice of post-mortem photography and the way they so embrace and normalize the idea of death made me feel a little less like I'd gone crazy. 
Their use of mourning jewelry containing the hair of the deceased is carried over into my use of trinkets of the deceased and human hair on my puppets. Hans' puppets are some of the creepiest we have ever seen, and they certainly are odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now, this month in history. April on the 2nd in 1891, Max Ernst was born in Germany. He also died in April on the 1st in 1976. His father taught him to paint at an early age. He was forced to join the German army during World War I. The trauma of war affected him greatly and he turned to his art to help him cope. Ernst would be a founding member of the Dada art movement and surrealism. He would create collages from various materials like illustrated catalogs, manuals, and paint. It was this collage style that inspired other painters and surrealists. He created his own world of fantasy. Ernst came through Ellis Island in 1941 and eventually made his way into the New York art scene through his third wife, Peggy Guggenheim. Jackson Pollock became a follower of Ernst. Eventually, Ernst moved to Paris, where he eventually passed away. There are those who believe that Shakespeare is not the author of the plays attributed to him. There's a Renaissance conspiracy theory that claims it was someone else. And there's not just one theory in regards to this. On today's episode, we are hosting a roundtable with listeners Angie Reynoso Akbarzad, Bob Shearfield, Rhonda Borgen, and Emily Reidner. They're going to present the different theories and their thoughts in regards to them. If Shakespeare was who history claims he was, what are the details of his life? There are no tales of his spirit still walking the earth, perhaps because he was someone else, but he did use ghosts in several of his plays. What were those plays and what part did they play in his works? Join us as we explore the life of Shakespeare, the theories about his identity, and the ghosts he used as characters in his plays. So this is our Shakespeare roundtable. And this idea really spawned from Bob Sherfield and Rhonda Borgen, who are <laughs> joining us. And then we have Angie Reynoso Akbarzad. Akbarzad. Yay! <laughs> and Emily Reidner all joining us. And we're going to talk about the different theories when it comes to William Shakespeare. His ghost actually doesn't haunt anywhere. So this isn't going to be like a life and afterlife of William Shakespeare. But we are going to talk about the ghosts in his play as well to get a little bit of the supernatural in here. Before we do that, though, we're going to talk about these different theories when it comes to who was Shakespeare. And first off the bat, we're going to have Bob. He's going to talk about the Stratfordian theory, which is basically Shakespeare was Shakespeare and he wrote his own stuff. Yep, that'll do. <laughs> Done. <laughs> first question, does everyone actually believe that he existed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, oh, I yeah. That's fine. yeah, that's fine. Definitely. <laughs> okay, good. So, yeah, he was William Shakespeare was born in um, April 1564 to John and Mary Shakespeare and Neat Arden, who were residents of Stratford upon Avon, which is a market town, which at the time was of about 4,000 people, uh, about 100 miles northwest of London. Uh, his birthday, which isn't precisely known, is taken to be April the 23rd. There's a couple of reasons for this. It's possibly 
so that uh, it could match up with the date of his death. And it also fits in with his baptismal date, which was the 26th of April, because I believe that at the time it was a standard practice for children to be baptised within three days of their birth. It also happens to be St. George's Day. Whether that has any bearing on their decision, I don't know. Father John was, a, amongst other things, a successful glove maker in the town. And his mother, the Arden family, who were or had ancestral links to local gentry, and they believed they could trace their family line a long, long way back to before Norman Conquest, I think. John was a prominent member of Stratford Society, and he held a number of offices, including aldermen, which meant he had a seat on the local council. And then he became the bailiff, which is pretty much the mayor, in 1568. He also held the position of Justice of the Peace. That was before 1576, when he ran into some money problems and ended up being kicked off the council. Interestingly, I think it was during his time as bailiff that um, touring companies of players were first allowed to perform in Stratford. And it would have been on his authority that the license was granted for that to happen. Obviously, William's education is a matter of speculation as no records exist any longer for the town guild school. But it was, if the research you've done is correct, free to male children as long as they were able to read and write who lived in Stratford at that time. And it's my opinion that given his father's position, that he probably would have attended. I think it would have been unusual for someone who was mayor's son not to go. If he had gone, assuming he did go, the um, standard education in grammar schools at the time was to learn Latin grammar, literature and classical plays. The main thing they focused on was the learning of Latin. I read in one source that they <coughs> learned, I think it was 150 different ways of saying thank you for the letter which uh, seems a little extreme, but uh, if it's true, that would give an indication of the level of understanding of Latin that he would have had to have had. However, it appears that they didn't probably learn much else other than Latin. After that, he pretty much disappears. So we've got his birth registered, and then there's not really a lot about him, if anything at all, until his marriage to Anne Hathaway, which took place on the 28th of November 1582. Anne was the daughter of a fairly wealthy local farmer. However, she was eight years his senior, and the marriage had to be conducted in some haste. I believe that special permission was given for the wedding bands to only be read once, rather than standard three times. This is probably due to the fact that Anne was already pregnant, as Susanna was born only six months later in May of 1583. Ooh, scandal. Yeah. Two further children followed, twins, Hamnet and Judith, although Hamnet died fairly young at the age of 11. Shakespeare then again disappears from, or appears to disappear from public record for seven years between 1585 and 1592, when a reference appears or is made to him by an author, uh, Robert Greene, um, calling him an upstart crow. So it, that does refer to him, and we have to assume that sometime during that period he began his career as an actor and a playwright. There are some legends that exist as to what happened to him during those periods, one suggested that he fled Stratford to avoid charges of deer poaching. However, that seems to be unlikely given that the deer farm wasn't put in place until nearly 100 years later. So I think that's a little bit unlikely. There is another legend that says he went to work in Lancashire as a schoolmaster. His father's family were from Lancashire and his grandfather still lived there. So there is a chance he would have gone to the county as he had family there. And there does appear to be a record of someone with the name, or there is someone record of someone with the name William Shakespeare Shaft, 
working for the Hesketh family during that period. And if the records are correct, Shake Shaft was how his grandfather spelt the name. Interesting aside to that is that the same family also had links to the Globe Theatre. And the daughter of the family that Shake Shaft worked for was, an, I think, either a shareholder or an executor for um, shares in the Globe Theatre. I found out that now, since he was married, that actually ruled out Shakespeare from being able to go to university because universities were only for unmarried men. It also barred him from taking an indentured apprenticeship, which would have restricted many of the avenues he would have had into trade. So perhaps he wouldn't have been able to follow his father's job or anything else. However, I did read that players and actors weren't restricted, didn't have that restriction. So that would have given him something he could go into. By 1594, he'd become part owner in an acting company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, so-called because they were sponsored by the Lord Chamberlain at the time. And they were so popular that when the Lord Chamberlain died, James I took over the company and they became the King's Men. Obviously, during this time that many of the plays were written and the sonnets, etc. I uh, haven't gone into too much date on that because it would take forever. And probably most people have a good idea of uh, when that was. So he would have been acting at court as for court and then also at the Globe and Blackfriars theatres for the general public. It seems sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that he moved back to Stratford in 1608 and wrote his later plays there. By the end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century, Shakespeare, through his earnings in London and possibly other business deals, had earned enough money to buy the second largest house in Stratford, which was New Place, as well as substantial parcels of land. He had invested in the church as well in Stratford, which is why he's buried where he is, as not because of his uh, standing. He'd also purchased an apartment at the former Blackfriars Priory Gatehouse. Shakespeare then appeared again in some legal documents in the years up to 1674, including as a witness in a court case for some people that he knew in London. And also there was a case of slander against his daughter, Susanna, which wasn't a particularly pleasant case. He died in the April of 1616 at the age of 52. The cause of his death isn't recorded. The two sources I read said that influenza was rife in Stratford that winter. And so that's one possible cause. And some 50 years later, the vicar of Stratford wrote that he believed the court, he caught a fever after a heavy drinking session with Ben Johnson and another actor. That would be a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he's now he was buried in the chancel beneath the high altar of the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford and I think we've all seen the pictures of the, uh, the grave slab and the memorial there we go a lot of people try to say that Shakespeare didn't write all of his plays because he didn't have the education for it. But basically mm. what you described there is he had a general, what we would understand as a public education nowadays. And yes. then he was working in the theater for many, many years where he would have gotten his familiarity with writing plays and performing plays and that kind of thing. Yes. So. And an interesting note on the education, I was reading a document that looked at some of his contemporaries and friends that he had during his time that he was the same age as and grew up with him in Stratford. And several of them went to the Inns of Court to be lawyers and one became a publisher. So if people that were his contemporaries could move into those fields, the chances are he had this and he would have had the same basic education. There's a good chance that he would have been able to know the things and understand the things that he needed to. 
Well, I mean, if we go on top of that, Peter Ackroyd's book gives a really good description of how did Shakespeare know so much legal jargon and all this other stuff? Because his father kind of moved up from a farmer gentleman, you know, and that was like big deal back in the day. And I think my theory is more he was a closeted Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And it has so much to do with how Shakespeare moved within Stratford and London and the whole persecution of the Catholics going on back then. Peter describes something where the reason why there was such a close-knit community is because they were all closeted Catholics. And in order, so you wouldn't have to pay the, am I saying this right, recusant fees? Recusant. There you go. Recusant. Recusant, yeah. Yeah, they would give property to family members, like sell it off, and then tell them to return it after 22 years. And, And there's a thing that he's saying that William Shakespeare was really involved with that because he was helping his father with all this legal jargon. I think he is a Stratosporian and there's more that we don't know. And it just makes sense in my head. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. It does. I mean, I agree that Will Shack, I'll call him Shaxper. <laughs> I agree that he was a, a closeted Catholic and Edward de Vere actually was too. They have that in common. He actually had to apologize to the queen for running off to France and temporarily becoming Catholic. And uh, she forgave him for that. So I do believe that a lot of Elizabethans were Catholic, but they were afraid to profess that. And it was just a common theme. So it's telling in the plays that he did favor that religion. In my opinion, it has a lot to do with Italy and his love of Italy goes along with his love of the Catholic Church. Um, I mean, you look at Romeo and Juliet and how they portrayed the father or the, 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 what do you call him, the priest. He was just one of the most beloved characters in literature. So to say that he was a Protestant is kind of a stretch in my mind. Yeah, and Peter Ackroyd, he does say that William's father died a wealthy man. He owned property. So I there's no doubt that William Shakespeare had a very proper education for a male in his class at that time. So I would argue that, (laughs) but you know, there's no evidence that he could even sign his name properly. I mean, if you look at his signatures, it looks like the signature of a a child trying to learn cursive for the first time. They're all spelled differently. Some of them aren't even finished. And I I understand that people's signatures can look sloppy. I know mine do. You know, and they always look a little bit different, but his are, they're wobbly. They're, they're not the signature of someone who is accustomed to holding a writing instrument. We, his father we couldn't even his own name either. He used a, the Glover's symbol for his mark. Are we talking about the signatures on the will, though, or are we talking about other signatures? I'm talking about all six signatures that are in existence, and three of them are from the will, and three of them are from legal documents when he was not ill. And they all yeah, look similar. There was one that is pretty good, apart from it's slightly blotted at the end. And that's probably because of the quality of the paper. But I'm not sure that was in I the... I see one slightly better. Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> there was one of them. Oh, that one's okay. <laughs> no, but I think I think the whole argument about the signatures, they really didn't sign. You know, they used a signet. And apparently there is a theory that on one of his wills, he was supposed to use his signet ring to, you know, make the seal, but he lost it. And didn't, wasn't there an article that in Stratford, this lady was gardening and she found a, a ring that clearly described William Shakespeare's ring. 
Yeah, I've seen that. There is a gold signet ring with the initials WS on it that was found in the churchyard. I, I don't put too much stock on the whole signature thing because... I wouldn't, you know, I mean, support my entire yeah. case on as well. And <laughs> I've read an article that there was a, a close friend of his father's who at one point signed his signature with an X. And then, but they've also got a handwritten Latin letter from him that's completely legible. So it's hard to say at one point, why did he write his signature with an X when he could write in Latin? It's his father's friend, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, it's, it, but it's an example of someone not writing mayor, a signature. Right. I mean, if you consider his father was this alderman and the mayor, why is there no writing from him? I mean, he, he should be in the public record. He should have written something somewhere. But there's there's nothing. And, and the same with Shakespeare. I mean, if he was such a prolific writer and if he knew about the law so well, and some people say that he must have studied the law because his plays are permeated with the law and the law, the language of the law and the, the ideas of intricate cases that have implications i mean he he breathed it it wasn't like oh i'm gonna put in a little jargon here it wasn't like that he used the law as part of his everyday language yeah i've read again i've read one article that uh, that goes into discusses answers there are several books that have studied this and said that his knowledge of the law was no better or no deeper than contemporary playwrights of the time again he had two or three close friends who were lawyers so if he needed to know something he could possibly have just gone can you have a quick look at this for me does this make sense right i i don't agree with it though because i mean when you read the plays it's like he speaks it so naturally it's not like jargon i don't know i just i mean i don't think that i could do that they didn't have google back then you couldn't just say you know i'm gonna i'm gonna just go talk to somebody and I know an Italian, so I'm going to put all this Italian stuff in there. I just feel like everything flowed from him as a personal experience, not from him trying to insert. I I don't know if that makes any sense, but... There is that phrase, you write what you know. Yeah, you write what you know. And what did he write? He wrote all about kings and queens and dukes and lords and the court and the court intrigue and courts, the sports that only noblemen played. He didn't write about... I mean, he... There were only a couple of plays that were not about the nobility. I mean, it's like I, I can think of the Merry Wives of Windsor and um, I don't know what another one might be, but there's only a couple. Yeah, but then at I that point that he has these tenuous ties to the nobility and he, he did get his um, coat, of oh, arms. coat of arms. Yeah. Coat of arms. Yeah. He bought one. I mean, and, he was kind of obsessed with kind of rising and, I, and rank. And I would argue that he was writing plays for his audience. And if his audience was, was primarily court and that's where his benefactors were then he's going to write plays that interest them and they're not necessarily going to want to watch plays about common people an example of that and i don't know if this story is absolutely 100 percent true but apparently the merry wives of windsor was written in roughly two weeks and it was only because the queen loved the character falstaff so that's an (laughs) example of writing solely for your audience (laughs) yeah Right. I mean, yeah, Falstaff is a great character who doesn't love <laughs> Falstaff, but it's it's that point of if something is a hit, then you're going to continue writing it. So, right. And history plays were a hit because it was a really great way for the lower class to really kind of learn about what had happened because they don't exactly have access and maybe they weren't even able to properly read any of the chronicles that were available at that time. That was why I asked you how to pronounce Holland Shed, actually. Yeah. It was because that was the reference that the playwrights were using at the time. 
So basically, because of this point that you guys have made about the nobility, I know another argument that's made out there is that at the time it wasn't really a good thing for nobility to be writing plays. It was kind of beneath them. And so that's why some people make the point, well, maybe it was somebody of nobility who would be familiar with all of the trappings, but they didn't feel like they could write a play because that was no-no for them to do. So is that kind of what you're referring to? Well, it wasn't just beneath them. It was downright dangerous. Ben Johnson was thrown into prison for his plays, and they were highly censored. And if you had a message to get out and you were placed highly enough, your messages could be more damaging because you knew more. I feel like he kept his name secret just to keep himself from getting in trouble. And Edward Devere was always getting in trouble. <laughs> he was thrown in the tower for getting Anne Vavasor pregnant. And, um, you know, his his friend Earl of Southampton was almost killed for being involved in the Essex Rebellion. So it was just a dangerous time. And no one wanted to say, wanted to use their own name. They didn't do it. Like if you if you analyze A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, it's it's talking. Queen Titania was Elizabeth. And Nick Bottom was the Duke of Anjou, who would later become King of France. And he was wearing an ass's head for most of the play, and he he was lampooned. And it was all about the French marriage crisis. And I don't think someone that came out of nowhere would have access to that kind of information as far as court intrigue goes. And a lot of the plays have these little characters that you can totally pin on real people and everyone at the time knew it they knew they knew they were being made fun of but to admit it was to admit yes i am that fool and no one wanted to do that that's just my take on it yeah one question i've got on that though is that oxford was listed as a playwright and a poet so why would he write under his own name and under somebody else's name obviously i don't know what i have no great knowledge of what he wrote under his name and what was published Can I just get you to explain to the listeners, because some people aren't going to know what you're referring to here. So could you explain who Edward de Vere is on the Oxfordian theory? Oh, sure. Here's his quick bio. So Edward de Vere, he was born in 1550. He was made a ward of Queen Elizabeth I, obviously. In 1562, when his father died, he was sent to live with the Queen's chief advisor, who is Lord Burghley. Burghley. Lord Burghley. Sorry. No, that's Okay. (laughs) He oversaw uh, Edward's education and took charge of his finances until he came of age. And Edward later married Lord Burley's daughter, Anne Cecil. Everyone, well, I'm, I don't want to say everyone, but a lot of people, even Stratfordians, agree that Hamlet was, a, well, that Polonius was a caricature of Lord Burley. And, and the character Hamlet has many parallels with De Vere's own life. He was spied on by Lord Burley and... And just like Hamlet, De Vere was captured by pirates and left without his clothes on the shore of his home country. There's so many coincidences between De Vere's life and and the little and the plays that it's it's like almost too much to ignore. Um, well, and he lived in Italy for a few months, which is the setting of a lot of the plays too. Is that correct? Right. Yes, he traveled to the continent for 15 months, and most of the time he spent in Italy. He was in Venice, kind of that was his home base, and he traveled to Palermo. I mean, like. All the places he traveled are basically ports of call of the plays. He was in Verona and in Othello. He describes a harbor in Cyprus that he describes it so well that he even describes the vantage points and how you could not see the ships coming in from where they were standing. Like you can you can actually read his plays, go to Italy and find all the places that he talks about. 
the island from the Tempest is, I don't know if it's called Volcano, Vulcan, Vulcan. And some of the geological uh, features are spot on with the plays. There's just so much depth to the plays. If you if you look at Devere's life and you look at the plays and you read them in unison, you're like, I, I you just get so much more out of them because you're like, this man was here and he saw this and this is the island he was talking about. To me, it's just yeah. beautiful. I, when I when I look at Will Shakespeare's life, Shakespeare, whatever, it's just void of these experiences. He could have read about them. He could have heard about them. That's true. But somebody who was called the soul of the age because of his writing had to have experienced at least some of what he was writing about. And um, I mean, I'm not going to say he vague. went. <laughs> It's not proof, yeah. but to me, it's, no. it's circumstantial. I, I'm not. I have no idea whether he went, but it is. It was normal for commoners to visit Italy as well. I mean, for example, Richard Burbage, who was the chief actor in the company of players that Shakespeare was in, visited Italy twice. So if you need it, again, this goes back to the point of was he writing what he knew, or was he using other people's information or sources? He had someone who he worked with every day that had been to Italy. Right. It's not impossible. No. There's one there's one anecdote that I'd like to say about the, the poem Venus and Adonis. It was probably his greatest, most popular work during his lifetime. It was his first one that he actually signed his name to. I, I think we've all heard of Titian, the painter. He was a Venetian painter in his home in, in, in Venice. There was a painting of Venus and Adonis. It wasn't it was the only painting which showed Adonis wearing what they called a bonnet, and it does. It looks like a bonnet. Shakespeare, uh, in the poem, Venus and Adonis, describes this painting in great detail, and he includes how Venus was positioned in front of him and her arms grasping him like a band, and he, he talks about the bonnet, which is not, it wasn't a feature on other paintings of Venus and Adonis that I know of. I mean, I could be mm. wrong, but this makes plain that the writer of the poem had seen a painting for himself, and it was not yet publicly displayed, even in, even in Italy at the time. It wasn't something that just anyone could see. If Shakespeare had these lost years, he could have gone to Italy. I'm, I'm, it is possible, but he had to have gone in Saltitian as well. <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion, it's this bonnet. You got to look up the painting. It's it's gorgeous. It's a funny little hat for this god to be wearing. It's like kind of odd, actually. All right, I'm gonna have to go. Sorry. No. Oh. No. <laughs> I'll see you later. Thanks for joining us, Bob. <laughs> see you, bye. I'm sorry. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Bob. We oh, do agree on, on a lot, I think, but, uh, you know, it's just all a matter of perspective. I just feel like it's very interesting because, for me, I only know Shakespeare because of school. We had to read it at school. My favorite, favorite play that is always going to be Roman and Juliet. That was the one play that I remember as a little girl seeing it, the 1960 version, movie version. I remember trying to figure out what the heck are they saying. <laughs> and then, you know, the 2000 film that came out, or was it 1998? I can't remember with Leonardo DiCaprio. It opened my generation to fresher eyes to William Shakespeare. And just doing this roundtable kind of made me dig deeper more in the life and how much we don't even know. And a lot of it is just speculation. And I mean, I can speculate. I, I can totally agree with Bob because I feel that there was a person born in Stratford, um, Avon, and we just don't know. They didn't keep documentation mm -hmm. like they did now. Imagine if there was a census back then. I think we would all know where he was. These lost years wouldn't have been so long. But I see Rhonda's point of view as well. He could have been this person. Well, and <laughs> you're, you're right. You know, noble. 
when you go back you know, so many years, it's hard to know the biographies because we don't have the evidence. We don't have clear documentation. So it does leave a lot of stuff open to interpretation. Exactly. Like coming from the student's yeah, point of view, who's them. looked way too deep into everything, because I've done various research papers on the people that we're talking about right now. I've spent way too much time pouring over every word from some scenes of these plays. We can have fun and we can joke around about our theories and why, you know, ours is more true or whatever. But at the end of the day, we really just don't know because there's there's no hidden record that we're probably ever going to find. Anything that would be of value has been destroyed because this was over 400 years ago. So it's kind of like that's the reason why it's such probably a great mystery is you're really not ever going to find out the truth (laughs) truth. It's okay. really fun to explore, though. <laughs> it is so much fun to explore. <laughs> like like Diane says, you know, she goes down these rabbit holes. That's what I did with Shakespeare. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, every time you mm-hmm. find something else, you, it leads you to something else. And it's kind of like, yeah, but there is never really going to be a conclusive answer unless they find some, some manuscript, handwritten, signed by whoever candidate we think it might be. It's sad that <laughs> we're not yeah. ever really going to know. But when we do, if we ever did find out, we'd be bummed because, well, oh, now we can't, yeah. you know, research it well, anymore. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a funny point that reading from Bill Bryson's book, Shakespeare's A World at Stage, his book was so small. And he even said, okay, it's so small because everything else is conjecture, speculation. So this is just the little nitty gritty. And that's the book that I started off with. He even mentioned something even that I was, you can say, mind blown, is the fact that his daughters were still alive. They lived until, I think, way later in their years. And his granddaughter was like the last of his line. And nobody seemed to ask them (laughs) anything about William Shakespeare because (laughs) nobody really thought about it. You know what I mean? And interject on that. Go for it. Edward's daughter, Susan, married the Earl of Pembroke, who financed the first folio. I'm just saying. (laughs) The Earl of Oxford's nickname at court was Spear Shaker. (laughs) Uh, I get it. There's just all these little things that make me wonder. (laughs) But there was a a connection to Susan, his daughter. Uh Interesting. So we can bring in a whole nother view into this, what's going on. Emily, why don't you explain a little bit about Marlovian theory? Yeah, Marlovians. I condensed this as much as possible because it is a bit intricate, so to speak. So Christopher Marlowe was born in 1564 on February 26th. So we're talking two months before Shakespeare in Canterbury. He attended a preparatory school for boys until he was awarded a scholarship to King's School. He later was awarded the Matthew Parker, who was at the time the Archbishop of Canterbury, scholarship to attend Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. During his studies at Cambridge, it is believed he was recruited by Sir Francis Walsingham to enter the English Secret Service and work as a spy. University records do indicate that there were extended absences between 1585 and 1587. Marlowe received his bachelor's degree in 1584, then stayed on to complete his master's. Because of the rumors that Marlowe was going to defect and go to a Catholic seminary in France, the doctors of Cambridge refused to grant Marlowe his master's degree. Quickly, though, after that happened, a letter arrived from the Privy Council stating Marlowe should be given his degree on the grounds that it was not Her Majesty's pleasure that anyone employed, as he had been in matters touching the benefit of his country, should be defamed, 
by those ignorance in the affairs he went about. Now, the head, the de facto head of the Privy Council at the time was Lord Burley, and he was also quite close with Matthew Parker, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and also the person whose scholarship Marlowe was at Cambridge on. Marlowe then established a reputation as a free thinker and participated in Sir Walter Raleigh's School of Atheism, and he did have some run-ins with the law. He was a bit of a bad boy, so to speak. In September of 1589, Marlowe found himself face-to-face with William Bradley, a friend's enemy, and (laughs) swords were drawn. The friend, who happened to be Thomas Watson, found the two fighting in the street, and he did intervene. Watson killed Bradley as Bradley backed him into a ditch. Both Marlowe and Bradley were arrested, but Marlowe was immediately released while an investigation took place. And eventually Watson was also released, but it was on self-defense because if he had been backed in, there was no other way that he could have defended himself. So he was immediately released as well. That in particular incident, people do draw parallels between the fight between uh, Mercutio, Tybalt, and Romeo, which I'm sure we're all very familiar with because it was from Romeo and Juliet. Fellow spy Richard Baines and Marlowe were in Holland trying to uncover Catholic plots to raise money via counterfeiting when Baines turned Marlowe in for coining. And coining is their term for counterfeiting as well. There is some speculation as to why Baines would have done this. One of which, and this is purely speculation, The Jew of Malta, which is a play that Marlowe had written, the villain in it, people believe, was actually based on Baines himself after he had an incident in France, he confessed to plotting to poison the wells to, I want to say it was to actually kill every man in the seminary, but I can't remember if that's what it was or not. And that is what the villain in Jew of Malta says something about poisoning the wells. So Marlowe also had a reputation for spreading blasphemies. His friend and fellow poet and playwright Thomas Kidd was arrested after a search of his room uncovered vile heretical conceits. Kidd said that they were given to him by Marlowe as the two had once shared a writing room together. Marlowe was also arrested and even confessed to it being his, but he was released on bail. Baines, though, at the same time, the man from before, had been working on bringing Marlowe back to court. He had been gathering evidence to use against Marlowe, and on May 27, 1593, he turned in his report with claims including, but not limited to, that the first beginning of religion was only to keep men in awe, that all they that loved not tobacco and boys were fools, that one Richard Cholmley <laughs> hath confessed he was persuaded by Marlowe's reasons to become an atheist. Now, by our standards, that really doesn't probably sound like a big deal, but you have to figure this is back in the time where Catholics and Protestants are kind of at each other. So that was very significant. Three days after that report was turned in, Marla was quote unquote stabbed to death in Deptford by Ingram Bridger. I probably did say that wrong. Rob is no longer here to help me with that. In a dispute over <laughs> in a dispute over the reckoning or who would pay their bill, his body was interred at St. Nicholas Churchyard. Plague victims at that time were also being brought there and buried in mass graves. Marlowe was just kind of thrown in with them. There's no headstone, just a short entry in the church burial records. And even if they would have wanted to exhume the body to verify that this is indeed Marlowe, plague-riddled corpses are a very strong deterrent to go in and do that. And to this very day, nobody actually knows where Marlowe's body is, if that is what really happened. So the theory is that Marlowe faked his death because the two men that were there the night that he died and Marlowe were all 
former spies that had reported to Burley. And the theory is that Burley helped Marlowe kind of fake his death and escape so that he would not be brought to trial because in the past, whenever Marlowe had gotten off on all of those charges, it was always Burley intervening. And this time, though, with that report that Baines had brought forth, there was no way that Burley, even with his power, would have been able to save him. There's also another theory. It is not covered in the book that I read. I have heard it, though. And it's that because Marlowe had been a spy, the, he knew things that the Crown didn't exactly want him to be spouting out. So it was possible that the Crown was going to have him murdered. So there's that. You've got the Queen after you now. And you've got all of these charges basically saying that you're an awful person. And... There is another theory that the church, just the church, wanted him dead because he was known to be quite vocal about his atheist beliefs. And also his play, Dr. Faustus, which some people might recognize the plot of as being a man sells his soul to the devil for ultimate power, which lasts for 24 years. It was quite popular. And in their day, Marla was viewed as like this god amongst playwrights because he did write incredible plays but also he kind of innovated stage effects as well he was using trapdoors, smoke people also honestly feared that the devil was being conjured on stage because of the latin chanting and how this man would just appear from a trapdoor. to us that seems very silly because oh, okay it's a trapdoor and some smoke but to their eyes it was very very different and a lot of power was held in those that could really enrapture people on the stage so that's the theory of Marlowe, is that he just faked his death and he was using Shakespeare's name as a pen name, essentially. I heard he had, he had gone to uh, Italy or, or other countries and kind of wrote from there also. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, London is a small town, I mean, when you think about it. So he would kind of have to disappear. <laughs> yeah. The sonnets actually are said to allude to quite a bit of exile. And the sonnets listed were 25, 26, 34, 50, 36, 31, 72, 81, 74, 112, 121, 88, 48. They're all sorts of allusions to exile in them, which if yeah. he did get up and leave London completely, also England, then he would have been in exile. And he also says in the sonnets, my name will be buried where my body is. And you can apply that too. If he was faking his own death, then yeah, his name has to go too. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that you can defend him using Shakespeare as a pen name, not only was Burley friends with, well, I don't want to say the word friends, but had gotten the career started of the man who printed Venus and Adonis, I believe it was. Venus and Adonis was put into print, I believe it was two weeks after Marlowe died. And Venus and Adonis is the first, as you mentioned, work that had Shakespeare's name on it. Otherwise, they had all been printed anonymously. Even Venus and Adonis initially had been printed anonymously in, I want to say it was April. And then it was printed a second time in, on June 12th, I believe it was, with Shakespeare's name on it. So that is a little suspicious timing-wise. Literally, as Marlowe dies, Shakespeare suddenly has taken it's the stage. Hard. Also, it's kind of a modern comparison, but Hollywood writers in the 1950s, if they were blacklisted for communist reasons, they would kind of pass their writings to other people who were not blacklisted. 
So it is it is possible that, you know, you were just kind of passing stuff under the door and saying, hey, I need you to say that this is yours. Well, and this kind of opens the door to another theory that I've heard is there was this group called the Wild Goose Club. And there were 20 famous writers that were part of this. Most of them were Freemasons and that they had all formulated this, quote unquote, Shakespeare person in order to write under him so that there were multiple writers of the plays. What do you guys think about that? I'm, well, I'm I, open to the idea. I, I believe, I, I mean, as an actor in a acting troupe, I really feel that your, your writing is going to be influenced with other people's ideas and they will, they will throw in lines there or suggestions. So I don't see that as not a possibility at all. No, his, definitely. His plays were definitely collaborations. Uh, they had different styles. So it, it, it is definitely, even uh, Stratfordians believe that the later plays were collaborative. And even then, it's, uh, what was it, a year ago? They officially announced that one of the Henry plays that has always been solely attributed to Shakespeare was now going to be always printed with Marlowe as a co-writer on it. Oh, oh, I've read that too. Yeah. And if you look at the history plays themselves... That's kind of interesting as well, because Marlowe wrote Edward II, and then there's a lot of controversy over who wrote Edward III, whether it was Marlowe, Shakespeare. I'm pretty sure they even threw Kidd in there. There were quite a few playwrights at the time that nobody really knows who wrote it because it was not published with the name. But after that, Shakespeare's history plays start at Richard II. So essentially, there's just one missing, which is Edward III, which is the gap between Edward II and Richard II. I get really fuzzy on all the, the dates. <laughs> it's like, it's so hard to pinpoint dates because a, a, a play could have been written years before it was actually staged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is evidence of that with Hamlet, uh, or there is an Ur Hamlet that was supposedly written a long time ago, uh, or, you know, before any of the plays were written. So it's just so hard to pinpoint dates that I, I, I give up. <laughs> But a lot of going back to the theory of collaboration and then another reason how we don't even know if really William Shakespeare wrote the plays because isn't wasn't it common knowledge that if you worked in acting true and you wrote your plays weren't yours, they were the company's plays. So so he couldn't sign off and say by William Shakespeare. So there's I feel like the. It's such an enigma. <laughs> it, it really is. Are you sure he wrote Henry VIII? Or how do we know? Shakespeare in his lifetime, he wasn't known as a playwright. He was known as the author of Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece. That was what he was famous for. It wasn't until years after his death when the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery published the first folio, which was the first collected works of his plays, that his name became kind of like immortalized and associated with being a playwright. During his own lifetime, and I'm talking Oxford and Will Shakespeare, they weren't really associated with being famous playwrights. It was sort of like a legacy that was built after their death. Mm -hmm. Uh, Makes it even more Mm -hmm. hard to get to the bottom of. (laughs) He was also known during his lifetime for the sonnets as well, though. Right. Which is just, really, he was just known purely from a poetical standpoint. Right. And the sonnets were published, uh, like, uh, 1609, I believe. And It was um, it was during the time were, that the plague was had shut down the theaters, because he needed to make money. Right. Mm-hmm. And o- Oxford died of the plague, actually. And the sonnets 
were written, the, the dedication was written to our only, to our ever living poet or something like that, which was something that was a phrase that was only applied to people who were dead. So in 1609, they were saying, this poet is dead. We're, we're releasing these sonnets in his memory. Which That was know, actually I'll... one of the arguments why it could have been Marlowe was because he's supposedly dead and he was right. acknowledging himself as the author. <laughs> well, ladies, yeah, I'm going to have to go. So like sorry. The... Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me be part of it. I know my contribution was very nil compared to everyone else's, but no, it, was it was fine. Great. It was good. <laughs> and the reason why I wanted to is my birthday is April 23rd, so I really feel ah! close to the bard himself. Ah! So, yay, me. Okay. <laughs> happy birthday right, to happy Angie. Birthday. Thank you. Okay, happy bye, birthday. Bye. <laughs> bye. All right, bye-bye. Well, for the last two survivors on our island... <laughs> There's also this really far out theory. And the first time I ever heard this one put out there was by one of my English teachers when I was in high school. And that was the idea that since Queen Elizabeth I was basically Shakespeare's patron, that she was ghostwriting some of the works. What do you guys think of that? I have heard that. Yeah, I don't believe it. Um, And it's not because I think it's so impossible. It's nothing to do with that. I just feel like, yes, she was quite the patron of the arts. She had way too much stuff going on as the monarch to be writing and to be writing to ghostwrite with a playwright, no matter who the playwright was, whether he was at court or not. And if anything, I feel like if that were to be solidly true, I think it would play more toward the Oxford theory because Oxford was her favorite. Some say they were first. Yeah. And some say that, um, you know, she had a child by him and maybe that it was Essex. But that's a very far out theory that I haven't really Mm -hmm. grasped completely. But yeah, they do say that they were very close. And maybe that's why he got away with being he could do what he pleased. And when he did get one of her maids in waiting pregnant, that's when he was exiled from court. And he was in disgrace. And the, the sonnets talk about I'm in disgrace. And I'm and they talk about being lame. And when he when he fought with, or when he was released from the Tower of London, Anne Vavasor's kinsmen fought him in the streets, also an allusion to Romeo and Juliet, and they injured him, and some say they, that he was lame after that. He, he called himself lame. I'm lame now. And mm-hmm. in, the, in the sonnets, he talks about his lameness and his old age and his disgrace, and it all fits in neatly with Oxford's life at the time, and that could be why Queen Elizabeth said, bye, <laughs> you got my lady-in-waiting pregnant, and we were... She was older at the time, and maybe she was feeling rejected and spiteful. Yeah. It didn't go well for Oxford after that. <laughs> Before we jump into the ghosts, Denise, I know that you're not a real big Shakespeare person, but after listening to what everybody had to say, where do you fall on the authorship? I have no idea. <laughs> because well, He's being diplomatic. <laughs> no, well, there's a lot of really good points, and I mean, I'm even thinking some of the points brought up to where... You have to know what you write isn't necessarily true because one of my favorite authors writes about serial killers and I'm pretty sure that James Patterson is not a serial killer himself. (laughs) Might be, but, and he writes, he writes very convincingly about these very twisted minds. And so, and then he just hangs out with those labs and in Florida. So I don't necessarily know that that would disqualify Shakespeare from being a real person but then all the other ones would make sense too. So it's really hard to say. So I think I'm just going to conclude that he's always going to be a mystery or she, if it's a ghostwriter. And mm-hmm. 
it'll just leave us up to to search it out. And at the end, it will be up for each one of us to decide. Well, for me personally, there's no hill that I would die on when it comes to Shakespeare, just because I don't feel like there's anything that is set in stone since it is so far back. And there's, I think there's a lot of great arguments on most of the theories out there. For me personally, I think he was a real person who existed, and I think he might have written something. I don't know that he wrote all of them, and I lean more towards the collaborative effort of we don't know who all these actors and actresses would have been and the different companies that he worked with, and so maybe some of them were of a higher education if he didn't have it, so that's kind of where I fall. The fascinating aspects in Shakespeare's plays are the supernatural elements he brings to them. Let's put ourselves in his time and how the world would have explained the unexplainable, the mundane, the awkward, and the embarrassing. And that was with the supernatural, not science. And with that, it gave the 16th century the answers to things that needed answers to. In researching the ghost elements that influenced Shakespeare, I've concluded that they came from three sources. More importantly, his upbringing, the religion, and the study of classical literature. In his upbringing, it was a a major factor in his life. During Elizabethan time, superstition was embedded in the culture. Ghosts were part of that culture, and it was accepted. On the website, thebard.org, an article from Howard Waters titled Ghosts, which is in Shakespeare, he writes, Ghosts were recognized by the Elizabethans in three basic varieties. The vision or purely subjective ghost, the authentic ghost who has died without opportunity of repentance, and the false ghost which is capable of many types of manifestations. These varieties are still recognized in our day if you think about it. If you think about how ghost hunters describe these ghosts when they're ghost hunting, I believe they're kind of the same. Now we have a wider variety, I believe. In the religion factor, um, we are dealing with his upbringing of being a closeted Catholic, but being Protestant outwardly. In a blog post written by Ross McFarland called Ghostly Comings and Goings in Shakespeare's Plays, he mentions how the ghosts may represent the changing attitudes towards religion. He states, After the Reformation, the notion of purgatory, a state in which souls would reside temporarily, undergoing purification before entering heaven, it was rejected. How did the reformers explain the notion of ghosts? They believed in them, but they were more demonic in origin and were here to disturb, confused, and mislead Christians from the righteous path. So in short, they were the devil. <laughs> we know that Shakespeare had a very decent education and learned Latin and smattering of Greek, if you still believe he's from Stratford. In his classical literature, um, the stories he read influence his themes of ghosts due to the pagan world of Hades and how dead souls are able to return to our world. In the article in the British Library website written by John Mullen called Discovering Literature, Shakespeare, and Renaissance Writers, Ghosts, and Shakespeare, John Mullen states that in Hamlet, Horatio begins the play doubting the existence of the ghost that Bernardo and Marcellus claim to have seen on two previous nights. When he sees the ghosts too, he reaches for supernatural precedents from classical literature. Horatio observes that before Julius Caesar's assassination, the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. The reference is characteristic of this bookish young man who finds a better guide in classical sources than in Christian belief. 
there are at least uh, four plays that Shakespeare has written the ghosts in. One I already mentioned was Hamlet. Hamlet features the ghost of his father. Hamlet's ghostly encounter seems most plausible. The ghost that appears to Hamlet is his father, the dead king. He almost seems residual in form and that he has a nightly ritual of walking about his former castle. Several people see the specter from Horatio to the guards. The ghost will only speak to Hamlet, though. The two carry on a heavy conversation. The dead king calls for vengeance. The ghost claims that he is forced to walk the earth, which backs up the belief in purgatory, and he demands that his son get revenge to help bring him peace. Hamlet slips into depression and madness after his father's ghostly visit, and he eventually dies. The whole family is consumed with the need for revenge. Horatio begins the play doubting the existence of the ghosts that Bernardo and Marcellus claim to have seen on two previous nights. Then Horatio eventually sees the ghost for himself. When Hamlet finally confronts his mother in the so-called closet scene, the ghost comes back, but only the prince can see or hear him. You do bend your eye on vacancy, says Gertrude, yet the ghost does not appear. It speaks. And then we have Macbeth. Macbeth invites his friend Banquo to dinner, but has him dispatched while en route. Banquo later manifests as a ghost, and this has a connection to some Scottish folklore that Shakespeare may have been inspired by. In that folklore, it is said, untimely dead often return in search of food or hospitality denied them in life and must be satisfied, and that ghosts keep appointments made when living. Banquo had an invite to dinner, and he was going to keep it, so he manifests at Macbeth's dinner. But only Macbeth can see him, and thus the guests begin to question the sanity of Macbeth. Lady Macbeth apologizes for his odd behavior, explaining that he is tired and sick. Macbeth thinks that he sees a bloody dagger and solidifies that thought that he is crazy. The comparison between Macbeth and Banquo seeing the weird sister witches at the beginning of the play and him seeing the ghost alone seems to solidify that the witches were real, but the ghost was not there. Here's a fun tidbit on Macbeth. Not only are ghosts in the play, but as well the witches. It is believed that Macbeth is actually a cursed play due to Shakespeare writing about the witchcraft practiced by the weird sisters. The belief is he wrote too much about witchcraft practice and these were supposed to be kept secret. So during the production of Macbeth, there has been some mishap and injuries and it still exists now, these injuries and mishaps. Even today, it is often considered bad luck for members of the cast and crew to mention the play by name, but to refer it as the Scottish play. (laughs) And then in Julius Caesar, this is probably one of the most famous scenes out there. The ghost of Caesar is a part of this. And some of you may remember that one of our this month's in history was about the assassination of Julius Caesar. And one of the people who took part in that was supposedly somebody he thought was his friend Brutus. So Brutus has helped to murder Julius Caesar, and he is sitting at a table by the dying flame of a lamp when the spirit of Caesar manifests to him. Caesar wants revenge and is returned to fulfill a vendetta as he confronts his murderer. He informs Brutus that he will be defeated at Philippi. The ghost is described as monstrous. As the battle turns against him, Brutus cries, O Julius Caesar, thou art mighty yet. Thy spirit walks abroad and turns our swords in our own proper entrails. This helped illustrate how ghosts were mostly used to warn of impending doom or to seek revenge. Shakespeare was inspired by the book The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott, written in 1584. 
Scott was a skeptic and he felt that ghosts were a form of mental disorder that came from melancholy, timidity, drunkenness, and false reporting. Shakespeare draws upon these traditions and makes something new with his ghosts. Unlike the emotional and moaning ghosts of the Middle Ages, Shakespeare's are reasoning entities. And I think that's what made them so different for people because a lot of the time in these plays, you would just kind of hear them wandering around and moaning and groaning. And here they actually were speaking and bringing messages and such. My favorite play is Richard III, and there's a pretty awesome ghost scene in it. The Elizabethan era had a lot of superstition that went on there. They definitely were people who believed in the possibility of ghosts. And so Shakespeare ended up putting a lot of them, or whoever wrote it, put a lot of ghosts (laughs) in some of these plays. And one of those is Richard III. So why don't you go ahead, Emily, and share that with everybody? Okay, so if anybody's not familiar with Richard III... The whole perception that history has of him was shaped by Shakespeare. People found him to be this deformed hunchback, which that was proved that he kind of was. He did. What was it? Scoliosis. Um, And it did give him a minor hunch. But also he had like one shortened arm, serious limp, all of this. He was essentially a monster. And he was also the person that killed basically everybody his wife and his nephews, those darling boys in the tower. See, there's his brother Clarence, Prince Edward, who would have been the son of Henry VI. Just all of these people, they put their uh, their blood on his hands. So in Act 5, Scene 5 of Richard III, there's a scene where Richard is about to go to bed before the Battle of Bosworth Field. And so is Henry, the Earl of Richmond, who would later be Henry Tudor, the Henry VII. And the way that I view it, because I've never actually seen this staged, is one side of the stage you've got Richard, the other side of the stage you have Henry. And as they fall asleep, they're both dreaming, and the ghost of each person that Richard has been responsible for their death comes onto the stage. And to Richard, they basically curse him and tell him to despair and die. And then to Henry, they praise him and tell him to live and flourish. So they're essentially saying, you're going to die tomorrow. You're going to live on. And it is some of it is kind of creepy, especially whenever you look at the two nephews whose part would be read together. So now you've got two little cute boys talking together, and that just never echoes well at all. I have an audio recording of Richard III that Kenneth Branagh did. And it's it kind of it kind of creeps you out a little bit listening to that particular scene. (laughs) So did you want me to read any of it or just like pick and choose some of the parts? You can just pick and choose whatever some of your favorite stuff is about it. All right. Here's the ghosts of the princess. So this would have been two people speaking together. Keep that in mind. Dream on thy cousins smothered in the tower. Let us be led within thy bosom, Richard, and weigh thee down to ruin, shame and death. Thy nephew's souls bid thee despair and die. And then to Richard, they say, sleep, Richmond, sleep in peace and wake in joy. Good angels guard thee from the boar's annoy. Live and beget a happy race of kings. Edward's unhappy sons do bid thee flourish. And the boar's annoy, by the way, if anybody is not familiar, Richard's sign, of course, I can't remember what it's called now, was a boar. We talked about the Tower of London in one of our episodes, and it's just a horrible thought that these two little boys would have been smothered to death by this man. So, like you said, it just adds that creep factor in when you have these little children's voices saying these things, and then you think about what he's done to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to go there and 
feel that energy. Oh, I know. So much happened there. Thousands of ghosts. Oh my God. There's gotta be at least (laughs) ghost of Clarence and Clarence would have been George Richard's brother who would have been the middle child. Let me sit heavy on thy soul tomorrow. I that was washed to death with fulsome wine, poor Clarence be thy, thy guile betrayed to death tomorrow in the battle. Think on me and fall thy edgeless sword despair and die to Richmond. He says thou offspring of the house of Lancaster, the wronged heirs of York do pray for thee. Good angels guard thy battle, live and flourish. So they just do this back and forth. Each ghost kind of comes in individually and says, you know, despair and die to Richard, live and flourish to Henry. And the outcome of that battle, whether you're being dramatic or not, was just that, that Richard did fall at the Battle of Bosworth and Henry went on to be Henry VII. And I had read somewhere that Shakespeare's idea for this the parade of these dead coming back through Richard's life is his creation, but he got some inspiration from a story that had been written in the Hollandshed Chronicles. And I think Richard had said that he'd had this terrible dream with images like terrible devils right before the night before the battle when he supposedly had that dream. So he was kind of looking into something in the real life and added to it. And if you're seeing Mm -hmm. these terrible devils coming back, it's not hard to imagine it's the ghosts of your Christmas past all coming back to get you. (laughs) All at once, right before the most important battle of your life. Exactly. Well, it Mm -hmm. makes you wonder, like, if you have this, you're so stressed out about something that's about to happen and you have a dream, the dream shows the outcome. And then is this, it almost makes you wonder if the dream forces you to make that outcome happen in reality. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It almost kind of makes me wonder if you have this dream, but you convince yourself that it's not going to happen or you're going to prepare for it not to happen. When is the moment that you realize it's about to come true? <laughs> like, do you do you have that aha moment or is there just too much adrenaline that you just don't think about it? I just I've never had a dream like that. So I hope I never do. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> there might be time for an aha moment because I don't know if you've ever been in an accident or or anything, but even though it's just seconds, it seems like it takes forever for you to finally hit the car. Right. Time stands still. Mm-hmm. Your, your life, I've, I've heard that your life really does flash before your eyes. And I, I have had one dream where it actually, I don't want to say it came true, but I, I dreamed that a friend of mine got into a car accident and they were bleeding and they were just laying there in the street. And, and I saw that person at work and I was like, they told me they're going on a trip. I'm all, oh, be careful, be careful. And I didn't say why, because I, I just felt superstitious about it. I'm going to just drive safe. And they came back from their trip and they had been in an accident and they were bleeding and stuff. And I then I was like, okay, if I tell him that I dream that now, he won't believe me. So I just didn't even <laughs> say anything. But after that, I started really paying attention to my dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. The dreams are funny things. I did oh, hear a rumor that apparently Macbeth was written for James. And because James was quite into the occult, so to speak, and James ended up hating it. (laughs) He was very... So all in all, Shakespeare wrote his plays with the public in mind, of course, and the public seemed to embrace ghosts as a part of everyday life. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us this uh, afternoon and for suggesting that we do this kind of thing. It's... Definitely something we haven't done on History Ghost Bump before, and I think uh, the listeners are going to really enjoy it. It's a little different. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Keep it spooky, ladies. All right. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Is the man we have been taught with Shakespeare the real man? Did he write all of his works? That is for you to decide. Well, that was a fabulous and fascinating roundtable, Denise. I learned a lot. I am certainly not an expert on Shakespeare, and I can't say that I've read anything by Shakespeare since I graduated from high school and was made to read Shakespeare. Yeah, I think I only read one Shakespeare play, and I'm not quite sure what I read because I could never understand the, the language of it. Although I do respect the literacy of Shakespeare and everything and the people who study it. And I've seen many of the plays, seen the movies, so I'm familiar with it on a pop culture platform. And my sister, of course, used to work in the theater, and so I would go and see any productions that she was a part of. And I remember falling asleep during Richard III, and now I'm kind of bummed because it's like, oh, there's a bunch of ghosts in it, and I wasn't even paying attention. And we really want to thank Bob and Angie, Rhonda and Emily for joining us because they clearly have much more of an understanding when it comes to Shakespeare and his works than we do. Oh, most definitely. So thank you for bringing your knowledge and your opinions, and I hope that the listeners enjoyed that. On our next episode, we're going to be joined by the host of the Twisted Philly podcast, Dina Marie. We're going to be talking about Philadelphia's City Hall. This is a building that is close to the heart for Dina. It is, if you've ever seen the logo of her podcast, and you should have if you're listening to that podcast, it's an awesome podcast. And she uses City Hall as the image in her logo, and she's twisted it up to go with her name, Twisted Philly. She shares her love for this building, the history behind this building, and then we talk a little bit about the hauntings that are going on there as well. Yes, and it definitely makes you want, just listening to her passion and description of City Hall makes you want to be there in person. I mean, she definitely takes us there in the theater of the mind, but it makes me want to go and see this in person. So I'm looking forward to it. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, or where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did get a couple of comments on the website. The first one comes from Millie, and she wrote, I left a review on iTunes not very long ago. I think you do a great job. So many critics. I wonder if they could do any better. I only have one problem. I know you both have jobs and your time for the podcast is limited, but the show is just not long enough. I usually listen to Beyond the Darkness with Dave Schrader and Tim Dennis, then tune to your podcast on TuneIn Radio on my Kindle. I don't quite remember how I learned of your show, but I'm glad I did. We're sure glad you did too, Melly. And we've been trying to make the shows longer. This one for sure is much longer. And then we heard from Jane. Jane wrote, Hi, Diane and Denise, by far my favorite podcast. The paranormal is one of my favorite subjects and the history that you bring to us is fascinating. I'm learning a lot. Thank you so much for all the time and effort you put into this podcast. You two are great together and I always look forward to your podcast. Thank you so much, Jane. We appreciate that. You've taken time out to write a comment on our website. We also want to let you guys know, Denise and I kind of feel like we're birthing podcasts out of our podcast. It's a lot of fun. I think a lot of people are getting a feeling for, hey, if these two girls can do it, we should be able to do it too. (laughs) And believe me, if we can do it, anybody can do it. So one of our executive producers named Felicia and her husband have started their own paranormal podcast, and it's called Until Dawn. You can find it on iTunes right now. I know they're trying to get it up in lots of various places. I think it's up on Podbean, but real fun. I'm really enjoying the start that they've gotten to and wish you guys the best of luck. 
We have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. The first one is from Serendipity72. So happy I found this podcast. Five stars. I found this podcast originally on iHeartRadio and listened to each and every one before coming here to download the rest. I love the chit chat, humanizes the host so you know they are not just robots. I've started listening to similar topic podcasts, quickly turned them off and unsubscribed because the host sounded like a robot. No emotion, no personality. Denise and Diane are the complete opposite of that, which makes this podcast perfect for me. I 1 billion percent recommend this podcast and would like to thank Denise and Diane for introducing other podcasts into my life. Well, thank you so much, Serendipity, for that. And then we have a review from XSN0WFL4KEX, a favorite for sure, five stars. I just recently came across this podcast and it has definitely been added to my list of favorites. The combination of history, lore, and ghost stories keeps me listening. I've also enjoyed the recent episodes that have included interviews. Again, quite an enjoyable podcast to listen to. Well, thank you. Your name kind of like, looks like it should be Snowflakes. So that's what I'm going to call you. Thanks so much. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank executive producers Connie Moreno and Richard Tyrell for increasing your pledges. Thanks. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.